Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day. God knows how much we need it and wants to share it with us, especially the joy you experience when you share then that love with others in the problems that we are facing in this age and almost in every age. More about that a little bit later, but I'd like to begin a program as we do each week with a story that is based on faith and form with imagination. Jesus sat on the hillside, looking out at the blue waters as waves lapped upon the shore. When Andrew and Judas approached him, Jesus said, Come, sit with me. It is so peaceful. I feel I'd like to stay here forever. Judas replied, Yes, it, it is peaceful here, but give me the city any time. With all the people, its many smells, the different merchandise, the laughter, and even the crime, that's living. Andrew responded, I don't prefer either of those places. I'd like to go back to the temple and spend time with my father reading the scriptures. Jesus nodded. Andrew had been with him less than 30 days, and already he longed to return to his reading. Jesus said, One must also learn from everyone and everything around him. Peter approached Jesus and asked, Master, what will we do if you ever leave us? Jesus smiled gently and answered, You will go on living. Have I not taught you? Life is like the waves which continually flow up and down, in and out. Jesus said, Master, I remember you saying life is filled with many mysteries. Jesus nodded and Judas continued speaking, Well, when you were gone, for you have said all men must die, how can we make decisions because you are the one who has taught us so well? Peter shook his head and said, Judas, you make no sense. Jesus responded, Yes, Peter, he does. For there are many decisions you, my friend, must make, as he pointed to Peter. The words you will speak and the decisions you will make will be remembered through many lifetimes. The ability to make decisions is a precious gift. Many times decisions are painful, but they must be made nevertheless. I cannot live forever, as no man can, but my words, my thoughts, and my deeds will continue to be passed from one generation to the next. Remember, we can learn. We can learn from the mistakes we make. Decisions are surely a part of life as much as the sun that rises in the morning and the distant light at night which guides us. Our guest this evening writes in her latest book titled A Feast for Hungry Souls, subtitled Spiritual Lessons from the Church's Greatest Masters and 
mystics. Indeed, it is a feast. This book is is a feast, and our souls these days are certainly hungering. There are many lessons we have to learn. Many of them are spiritual lessons that Jesus has taught us. But again, she writes in her book, Who of us can know the mind of God? In this informational age, we seek answers to every question, yet we are so often lost in the drought-stricken climate of selfism, individualism, and functionalism. We risk losing respect for our human dignity, for our eternal calling in the Lord, and for the fulfillment of God's plan in our lives. All too often, we seek to master the mystery rather than allowing the mystery to master us. Our sense of the sacred suffocates us under the weight of noise pollution, talking heads, and weariness of any authoritarian voice or self-revelatory reflection. No wonder exposure to the teachings of these ancient masters may be a shocking experience. Popular psychology lauds self-actualization and shudders at the thought of self-mortification, preaching revenge and eschewing forgiveness until we find it unbearable to sit with our own thoughts. Still, the ancients remind us there are times when words must give way to silent presence to the mystery. Out of this depth of inner stillness comes prayers, sighs, and songs celebrating every experience from the glory of new birth to the shadow of death. These masterful texts remind us to acknowledge our creaturehood and never delude ourselves into playing God. They teach us that our deepest identity is reducible not to what we do, but to the essence of who we are. Only from this transcendent perspective can we resist the temptation to live by untruths that neglect the splendor of the whole and holy and holy to whom we bow in adoration. And the author of this book in those words is Dr. Susan Mudo. She is the executive director of Epiphany Association, one of our most frequent and best guests. Uh, she's a renowned speaker, an author, teacher, uh, dean of the Epiphany Academy of Formative Spirituality. She's an expert in literature and spirituality, as this book will reveal. And she continues to teach courses on an adjunct basis at a number of schools, seminaries, and centers of higher learning. And uh, she is a frequent contributor to scholarly and popular journals. She's the author of more than 30 books many of them we've had on this program over many years, among them 12 Little Ways to Transform Your Heart and the award-winning Gratefulness. She's the author with Reverend Adrian Von Kamm of more than 40 books, including Commitment, Key to Christian Maturity, and The Power of Appreciation. She lectures and leads conferences, seminars, workshops, institutes nationally and internationally. She's received many distinctions for her work, including a Doctor of Humanities degree, from King's College, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. She was honored in 2009 with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Catholic Historical Society of Western Pennsylvania. Dr. Susan Mudo was also the recipient of the 2014 Aggiornamento Award presented by the Catholic Library Association 
And she lives here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, especially in that part where I, too, grew up. Dr. Muter, welcome back to uh, Amplify. Thank you, Father Ron. Always a joy to be with you and to hear your voice, and thank you for the uh, lovely welcome. Wow, this is, this is a great book. It is a feast. It's, it's titled properly, A Feast for Hungry Souls. Our souls are always hungry. I think they exist in that way to know more. But at this particular time in, in life, in history, uh, certainly we need to reflect on some of the spiritual lessons that we have been taught by some of the greatest teachers and mystics uh, in, in, in the church, uh, in, the, in the world. So thank you for writing this book. And, and um, I think that it is written in some sense with and for Adrian, father of Adrian von Kamm, whose birthday, 100th birthday would have been this year. Yes, uh, all the more reason uh, for my dedicating A Feast for Hungry Souls uh, to Father Adrian. I note in that dedication the spiritual master who inspired me to return to the ancient, medieval, and modern roots of my faith tradition. And I really pray that this uh, book will encourage every reader to do the same, you know, we're very interested in our roots. You talk about uh, Ancestry.com and so on. But how many of us really understand the uh, treasure that awaits us in over a 2,000-year faith and formation tradition? So I think one of the inspirations for writing this book, which really has been in the making for many, many years through class after class of honoring ancient medieval and spiritual masters was to make sure that our generation never loses touch with the roots of our faith tradition. Um, I'm, I'm learning more and more uh, that uh, you can't have everything, you can't teach everything, uh, can't tell everything about a book in uh, even the two 40-minute segments of, of this program. So what I've tried to, to do, and you have 30 examples in, in your book of uh, some of the spiritual lessons that uh, are important for us to reflect on and to learn, um, and uh, I've tried just to pick one point out of one of them, one question. I figured if I had 30 questions, I've, I've already covered all the time um, and, and, and won't even cover those 30 but you begin by speaking about teachings from the desert tradition on the flight to freedom. Uh, what does it mean? The title of this chapter is Quiet Your Head and Hear With Your Heart. How do we do this and to what end? Well, it's important that uh, you focused on the title of the chapter because each of the 30 chapters is purposely titled with a spiritual directive, with a suggestion that we would want to uh, put into action in our here and, uh, here and now life. Um, it's absolutely fascinating that already in the century where the Desert Fathers and Mothers were writing, there was uh, such a desire to be still and know that I am God. In other words, not just to intellectualize about God, but to know God. 
And to know God uh, was agreed in the whole desert tradition. We have to flee from everything that distracts us in order to be free to hear what the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has to say to our heart. So that uh, theme, the flight to freedom, in other words, step aside from everything that distracts and worries us from morning till night so that we can listen to the still, small whisper of the Spirit in our heart and then go forward to do what the Lord asks us to do. This is a perennial theme Mm -hmm. of spiritual deepening, a theme that can actually be traced through all 30 masters that we visit in this book. You write about how um, we need to experience and know God intimately and personally, and nothing should replace our reliance on grace. We are to be in the world but not of it, and we must free ourselves from attachment to all that is not God and uh, to find our inner desert uh, in, in this particular chapter. The second one is run away from evil and run toward God. And you write, be God-centered. Our embrace of this practice forces us to face how much our heart has been ruled by disordered impulses and passions, typical more of a world-centered than a God-centered existence. Only when we relinquish what we doom to be essential for our happiness do we begin to make real progress in the life of prayer. Amplify on that, especially in light of what's happening in our world today. Well, how could anything be more timely than this counsel from a spiritual writer of the first four centuries, Evagrius Ponticus, who really was breathing the two lungs of Christianity, the Western lung and the Eastern lung. But he had an uncanny ability to explain how our very heart is a battlefield between virtue and vice, and how we really have to pay attention to the fact that the evil one and evil surrounds us, and that we mustn't ever underestimate uh, the power of evil to dissuade us from God-centeredness. So just those words strike me anew as being terribly important in our day. Instead of running toward evil, which might be symbolized by rioting and looting and burning, instead of running toward evil, if we really want to maintain some kind of inner integrity, we have to run toward the good. And that good, of course, uh, is, is everywhere around us. I mean, running toward the good may be about taking care of, of a neighbor who needs food. So these um, tensions between good and evil are as ancient as the human condition, and we're lucky to have Evagrius because, by the way, he was the first uh, writer in the history of the Church that actually cataloged what became the eight capital vices and later on the seven capital sins with St. Gregory the Great, who is also represented in the medieval section of the book. But pride, vainglory, avarice, lust, anger, envy, they're writ large in our world today. Uh, No wonder we need a little counsel to try to manage our interior life so that we're not so swept away that we forget God. The third title is Seek the Lord and Let Yourself Be Found. Gregory of Nyssa 
on the soul's ascent to God. And uh, the part of what you bring out in this in this particular chapter is that the that he is taught that the nearer we are to God, the more we see that he is incomprehensible since God always transcends anything we can know of him. And so that should not push us away because we can't know, but the desire should always be to want to know more, shouldn't it? Well, yes, because God discloses himself to us and yet conceals the depth of his mystery, but it's just that fascination with the mystery that brings us near and that nonetheless enables us to respect that we are not God, that God is always transcending. And uh, Gregory of Nyssa, who wrote uh, the great classic, uh, The Life of Moses, really um, wants us to have the courage to make that trek to Mount Sinai, but to reserve the fact that we can never, ever penetrate the ultimate unknowability of God. But you see, that's what stimulates our hunger, that we're always hungering for the more than. This was a very favorite theme of Father Adrian von Combs. In fact, he said what marks us as distinctively human, uh, different from any other form of life, animal or plant, is that we are always going beyond and going more deeply into always arriving, never fully arriving, because of the intense attraction of the triune God and the ultimate mystery that, again, reveals itself in Jesus and yet conceals its, mm. its ultimate meaning uh, that can no eye can behold. So Gregory is very poetic, but I think he um, tries to say to us, uh, you'll never stop seeking the Lord. And the more you seek him, the more the Lord will invite you to go on and on and on, all the way up the mountain. Okay, you need to break in right now. Welcome back to uh, Amplify with our guest, Dr. Susan Mudo, who is someone we've had on often. Um, she has so much to teach us through um, the spiritual lessons she has learned from some of the church's greatest masters and mystics. Uh, and every time she writes a book, I tend to think this is the best book she's written. <laughs> and I'm going to say the same thing about this one, uh, A Feast for Hungry Souls. And uh, part of the reason why, too, is I think it's what is so helpful is at the end of the book, uh, she goes through the uh, the 30 chapters of the book and uh, has like four, four, five, six lines, a brief summaries of the timeless and uh, timely themes that can feed our hungry souls at any time in our life. And I, we could just look at uh, these various chapters, this 30 summaries, I'll read them, and then go back to the book and read more fully uh, some of the lessons we can learn there. And so, Dr. Mudo, I really love this book for the way it's structured, and not only for the, the truths that it presents. Well, thank you very much. And uh, because it's hot off the press, uh, let me give uh, two numbers where our listeners uh, can call in and uh, receive a copy by ordering it through Epiphany. 
uh, at 412, this is the local number, 412-341-7494, and then toll-free, 877-324-6873. That's 877-324-6873. It's wonderful that uh, our supply is here, and I would just love to share a copy with your readers and thank you for noticing the structure of the book because you uh, really uh, nailed my intention in having the uh, short summaries of the 30 spiritual writers the 10 ancient 10 medieval 10 modern at the end of the book also to show everyone how the oldest of the old really becomes the newest of the Mm -hmm. new these themes are literally etched into the very fiber of our Christian Catholic faith tradition. Moreover, I structured each chapter so that at the end there are some guiding questions under the title Reflect Now and then Read More if one is interested. I say that because I think A Feast was also designed uh, to be helpful in small faith group sharing in our various parishes to say nothing of being an excellent a textbook, let us say, in a seminary, or I think a gift book that um, people in leadership would want to offer our, our population, especially since many of us have read and digested books like the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but we honestly sometimes have a problem. Who are these people that are mentioned in the footnotes? Who's Gregory of Nyssa? Who's Augustine of Hippo? Who's Bernard of Clairvaux? And that was um, part of the hidden agenda of writing this book, that uh, we really uh, want uh, not to be the first generation of Christians and Catholics who don't know enough about their great tradition to pass it on. Let's. Uh, you mentioned Augustine of Hippo, which is the fourth chapter, Say Yes to Grace and Change Your Life. And then I'm going to ask you to select where, to which chapter you think we should go given where we are at this particular time. If someone was to were to ask you um, with what's happening in our world, with uh, the racism uh, that uh, is raising its ugly head and with the virus and, and the virus getting stronger in, in some states and just so many different problems that we, we are, we are facing um, to say, who, who might we think of or, who, what lessons can we learn? Uh, St. Augustine speaks about conversion of the heart, and uh, uh, you write that the heart is not merely an organ that registers the way we feel. It is the center of our being where the battle between the good that we would do and the evil that would, we would rather not do rages in us until the tears of compunction give way to full compunction. And that battle, of course, is going on in many hearts uh, at this particular time. How is it that his suffering made sense to him? How can we make sense of our own suffering? Well, we have to acknowledge uh, the desperation that uh, we see and feel all around us. Uh, If there was ever an epidemic of spiritual hunger, it is now. That's often characterized by disgruntlement and confusion and the harder I try, it seems like, again, the beh- uh, behinder I get. And, and the level of frustration 
cannot be satisfied just with um, feeding ourselves organically. Uh, the spiritual hunger needs to be fed, certainly by uh, Holy Scripture and by, I think, uh, reading a spiritual writer like Augustine, because he lived in an age full of isms. I mean, racism is a terrible ism, but he lived in an age of Manichaeanism and Gnosticism and Pelagianism and every kind of heresy you could think of that severed people from deep respect for the whole person and for human dignity, deep respect for the fact that we are God's creatures, we are made in the image and likeness of God. And it took a while for Augustine to come to that truth. He was aided by his mother Monica, by St. Ambrose, but there was a moment when he knew that he had to make a choice, either go on with this life that made no sense ultimately, and that was full of irritation, even hatred, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and undergo that deep turning, that deep metanoia, so that the poison in his heart, uh, which was very, very definitely there, could be relieved by the gentle love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think Augustine is a spiritual warrior, and I think that reading uh, his confessions and certainly the way which I present them in Chapter 4 is enormously relevant today. All right, we've been through four chapters, and it's 946. (laughs) We have 15 more minutes here and 40 afterwards. Let the Spirit uh, direct you as to... um, which chapters you would like and and which uh, spiritual teachers you would like to say something about? Well, we certainly have uh, given some good credence to the uh, first of the ancients, the Desert Tradition, uh, Zagreus Ponticus, Gregory of Nyssa, and Augustine of Hippo. And I think um, if we could shift now to some examples from the medieval masters that are incredibly uh, relevant today, I think that uh, we have to bring up from uh, chapter 13, it is, and that is on Francis and Claire of Assisi, which is titled, Depend on God for Everything. Um, This is a time that we're all experiencing deprivation of some sort, whether it's deprivation caused by uh, social distancing or, for that matter, the deprivation that is felt when so many people... uh, in nursing homes and elsewhere have actually succumbed to this virus. So that that simple directive reminds us that um, we are not our own saviors. We are not our own um, rescuers from these difficult times. And so here you have uh, a chapter on Francis Sinclair that speaks to us of... um, the fact that we need to depend on God. I mean, Francis changed his life from a very wealthy person that could just about do whatever he wanted to hearing uh, this mysterious message, Francis, repair my church. So each of us needs to, in a way, ask ourselves, what in our world needs to be repaired? What in our church needs to be repaired? I mean, we've gone through some scandals in the church that have also... Uh, stripped many people of of their sense of of faith. So there is a lot that we can learn from uh, the example of uh, Francis and and Claire insofar as they um, 
knew that uh, when the times are as difficult as our own, we are not enough to get ourselves into a place of peace. We need to depend on God for everything. And I love that message. One of the chapters that I marked off was that Claire epitomizes the Franciscan ideal of faithfulness to Christ in poverty of spirit and purity of heart. Her love for the cloister complemented his zeal for the salvation of souls. Together, these two disciples became one epiphany of the Mm -hmm. mystery of redemption. If Francis was fire, it was Claire who struck the match. If Francis was oil, it was Claire who lit the lamp. And we all have a special uh, person like that in our life, I think. It could be a spouse. It could be a a friend. And for for you, in some sense, if I can say it, it's Father Adrian von Kahn. And we're just complementary in many ways. And even though we're different, we can work together. Absolutely, and there are some wonderful examples throughout the book of these partnerships in the mystery of redemption. Uh, For instance, uh, chapters 19 and 20 on uh, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. Another example of how important it is that we uh, respect the gifts that God has given us. Male and female, God created them in God's own form and likeness where they made. I think in our times, too, a wonderful... Um, counsel comes from uh, the English mystic Julian of Norwich. It's very familiar, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's hard for us to accept that when we're in the epicenter of such turmoil, and yet Julian's conviction through the Black black Plague that was um, really devastating Europe She's writing her showings or her revelations of divine love and teaching us the importance of trusting in divine providence. I, I feel that that message is extremely necessary to um, give us the patience to weather this storm and to know that God is good and that we can ultimately trust in the providence of God. And if we can believe Julian, who lived through the Black Plague, then all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. If I go back to uh, 19 and 20 to uh, uh, Teresa of Avila, she describes herself as a woman of common sense who experiences an uncommon passion for God. And you write that Teresa begins her teaching on fraternal charity by showing what can go wrong in our attempts to love one another. We err because our love is either excessive or defective. We love too much or too little, too possessively or too indifferently. And she suggests four degrees of prayer and praying as Jesus has taught us to pray. And then uh, John of the Cross, um, we can say something I would think about his concept of the dark night of the soul. Yes, I'm so happy that uh, we focused in on that because Again, uh, many of us, uh, if we are honest with ourselves, this is a midnight moment. Uh, Yes, there is the dawn, and yes, there is the twilight, but this is a midnight moment. Um, Where are you, God? Where is the 
decency and this um, emphasis that is so important in Christianity on respect for life and the dignity of every human being has nothing to do with race, color, creed, or religion. We are all God's children. And so in that midnight moment, uh, which John of the Cross describes, the dark nights of sense, I mean, many are feeling sensual deprivation. They can't go to the favorite store that they went to. They don't realize that they're living in the dark night of the senses, but they are. And the dark night of the spirit is that um, time when we feel uncertain of whether God really is listening to us and hearing our prayers. But then you have St. John reminding us that, hey, wait a second, in the midnight moments of life, what he calls naked faith in the midnight moment is is the only proximate means of union with God. So fear not. I mean, despite all of the deprivation, sensually and spiritually, we are closer to God than perhaps we realize. And uh, you write that woven by St. John into the tapestry of his work and validated by his life is his insistence that only when we are reduced to nothing, to the highest degree of humility, can the spiritual union between our souls and God be accomplished. Say a little bit more about that. Well, it's typical of St. John of the Cross that he truly does live in what Adrian and I called in one of our co-authored books, The Power of Appreciation. He is a master in appreciative abandonment to the mystery that the intimacy that is ours by virtue of our baptism is the strongest bond that we have with God and that we can really trust through the purifying nights of deprivation uh, and the illuminating moments of reformation that we're being drawn into not only union with God, but I love the term that comes out very strongly in this chapter, intimacy with the Trinity. Uh, we'll find that intimacy spoken of again in the modern master, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. But the, the combination of um, take up your cross and follow Jesus, because the suffering is there, but so is the joy of intimacy with the triune God and the resurrected Lord. And one of the common themes that we'll find throughout uh, the book is uh, is about prayer, isn't it? The importance of prayer, the power of prayer. We find it in, in so many of this, the works of the spiritual masters. Um, and um, she, she talks about, uh, she being uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, the call to love purely, uh, the call to be detached, the call to be humble. So prayer is 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 still something that it appears that many people don't really understand today, the power of prayer. Well, one of my hopes as we sit at this banquet table with the mystics and feast with them is that uh, our prayer life will be infinitely uh, boosted and that we will understand a great deal more about prayer. For instance, again, to trace that theme in among the ancient masters, chapter five is on um, Saint John Cassian, who actually teaches us the way of unceasing prayer, teaches us what it means to say, "Oh God, come to my assistance, 
O Lord, make haste to help me. And so unceasing prayer is something that each and every one of the masters tell us a little more about. For instance, in the the medieval masters, you come to uh, the great author of The Cloud of Unknowing on the work of contemplation. He actually gives us a little 10-step program in how to pray, starting with um, a simple lifting of the mind and heart to God. And uh, that's undoubted. We could learn from each of these great teachers something about the how-to of prayer. And I've really tried to pay attention to that in the in each chapter. And I think that uh, I love uh, St. John Cassian's uh, uh, belief that we can unmask the deceptions in our spirit by not merely saying prayers, but by becoming living prayer, becoming prayer ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? And yes. it goes back to one of the... Um, Ideas even from the desert tradition that uh, prayer is to the spirit what breath is to the body. If we stop breathing physically, we will die physically. If we stop praying, we will die spiritually. So to compare prayer to breath is so important, and Cashin really um, emphasizes that breath experience. Oh, God, come to my assistance. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. And, of course, uh, would very much honor, uh, in the earlier tradition, the Jesus prayer, which is matched to our intake and outtake of breath. So, really an important spiritual teaching. Um, We just have one minute before we need to take our next uh, break, a little more than a minute. But you had mentioned the way of unknowing And uh, in this chapter, it's pointed out one of the things that I pulled from it is we we live between two awesome unknowables, birth and death. And we, we see that in many forms these days. We live between two awesome unknowables, birth and death. When we face the great unknown, we can cower in fear or rise up in faith. And then you write also to truly know God in a union descending all knowledge. We must let go of what is known by our senses and our under and our understanding. So there's there's always a new way for us to come to know God. There's so many experiences, so many challenges in life, so many blessings in life that we need to to be be attentive to and to learn from because they're lessons that God is teaching us at every moment. So we're, we're approaching rather than asking another question, we are coming to the end of uh, this particular first hour. And our guest again is Dr. Susan Mudo. We are talking about her book, a feast for hungry souls. And we are hungry souls these days with all the challenges that we face right now. <laughs> 